Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Remedy Church, and we're glad to have you here on the Lord's Day as we worship Christ. If you guys would stand with me as we read God's Word. We stand um, here just to acknowledge that the words that we're about to read are not just merely uh, man's words, but they're God's. So John chapter 3, 22 through 36 says this. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anan near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and the people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put into prison. Now a discussion arose between some of the John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, you guys can be seated. Let's pray. Father, um, help us to see Christ as he really is. Um, help us to see Christ like John the Baptist sees Christ in our text today. To see him as the bridegroom who has the bride. To see Christ as the one who gathers us this very day around himself to worship him and to delight in him. Lord, show us more of his glory and print his image on our hearts. Let us worship you today in Jesus. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So another book of John, Revelation 21.2 says this, and it's a, it's a different kind of vision. So in, in Revelation 21, we have a vision of the bride of Christ. In our text today, we more have a vision of the bridegroom, which is Christ. So Revelation 21 says this, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Later on in the same chapter, verse 9 clarifies again and says, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And then the rest of kind of chapter 21 and 22 of Revelation is about the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the glorified um, saints of God, the purified and glorified saints of God. So today, we actually get to see the one who is glorious, and the one who purifies those saints. We get to see Jesus as the bridegroom, and we get to taste and see that. Now, there's going to be two visions of Jesus in this passage. There's the vision that is kind of presented to us by 
uh, John the Baptist's disciples, when they look at Jesus, they just see a rival almost, uh, someone who's in competition with them, a growing ministry. But then John the Baptist corrects them, and he gives his vision of Jesus, and it's he's the bridegroom who is collecting and gathering his bride. So before John is able to point to Jesus' glory, he is actually faced with a temptation, a temptation to, like his disciples, covet or have envy for Christ, the, the breaking of the 10th commandment, we could say. And more than that, it's covetousness and it's envy of Jesus himself, which is a bit stronger, right? So before we actually dive in, let's kind of look at a few things. First, there's a pattern that our text follows. So John chapter 3, um, Pastor David, uh, he preached on the Nicodemus story, and that's uh, John 3, 1 through 21, and that's broken into two parts. John 3, 1 through 15, which is what Pastor David um, taught on, and that's the Nicodemus conversation. But then 16 through 21 are what uh, copyright Joe Mueller said are post-resurrection reflections where the gospel writer John is reflecting on a story. So you got the Nicodemus story told, and then you got John reflecting on it. In our text, it follows a very similar pattern. In verses 22 through 30, Jesus is, or John, the gospel writer, is recounting John the Baptist's kind of last words in this gospel. And then the following verses, 31 through 36, serve as John, the gospel writer's post-resurrection reflection on what's going on with John the Baptist here. And so 31 through 36 um, is John, the gospel writer, explaining the story that he wrote earlier on. So both are about to, both are, uh, there's also some um, comparisons between the two. So the Nicodemus story, it's about being born again, being brought into the kingdom of heaven. Our story also, even though the disciples don't see it, John sees it, is also about people being brought into the kingdom of heaven, being born again. And then there's another commonality. In the Nicodemus story, the Trinity is highlighted. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, are they show up all throughout the text. And also in our text today, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are openly discussed. So there's a few observations you guys can look at verses 22 through 24. This is kind of the setting. And there's a few observations to be made here before kind of diving into the heart. The first one is this. There's two baptismal ministries going on. There's two. There's Jesus's and there's John's. They're baptizing in a place called the Anan near Salim. We, we don't exactly know where this is. Traditionally, there's kind of two spots that this could be, but that's not really the point of the author here. The point is to bring attention to the word water. So uh, D.A. Carson points this out. The word anion is actually a Semitic transliteration that means springs. So it means springs. And then also John adds the comment right after that, there was plenty of water there. So just the point of locating this is that there's lots of water. There's two baptismal ministries going on. A second observation is verse 24. It's a parenthetical statement. For John had not yet been put in prison. And on the face of this, it doesn't really look too important, but there's a clarification here by the, the gospel writer, likely because there's an understanding from other gospels, other life accounts of Jesus, 
that kind of understand John the Baptist goes to jail, and then Jesus' ministry starts. And so John's now just making a little clarification that there actually was a time before John the Baptist went to jail and after Jesus was tempted in the wilderness to where he was also doing ministry. He's clarifying that likely because the church would have understood, like, for instance, Mark 1.14 as just stating that Jesus didn't do ministry until John was put in prison. And now John's saying he did. Are they contradictory? John's just saying, no, they're not. Both are true. Um, and then this third observation, and this is a point of grammar, and this launches us into the heart. Verse 22 says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was, bapti- and was baptizing. So what's really interesting is there's these three verbs, went, remained, and baptizing, are all in a singular um, they all have a singular person. So the subject of them is supposed to be singular. But if you look at the sentence, it's Jesus and his disciples. And so it's really weird because it doesn't use a plural verb. It uses singular. So it's almost like he's saying Jesus went, Jesus remained, Jesus was baptizing. And then it has this effect of the disciples are just kind of awkwardly in the sentence. Now, what's even stranger is in John chapter 4, verse 2, John qualifies this baptizing ministry of Jesus and says, Jesus himself didn't baptize anyone. His disciples baptized. And so you've got this effect of, in John 3, the verbs all belong to Jesus, but his disciples are there. And then in John 4, the disciples are the ones that are doing the actual ministry of baptizing. And so what's the point here? Um, Daniel Wallace, a Greek grammar professor, writes this of the verbs. He says, It's called the causative active voice, where the subject is not directly involved in the action, but he may be said to be the ultimate source or cause of the action. And so the point of application here is our ministry that's done in Jesus' name is actually Jesus' ministry, not our ministry. So the disciples baptizing people in Jesus' name, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the, the disciples baptizing people is so identified with Jesus that John can use a verb that says Jesus is baptizing people. Um, and this is not abnormal, right? We're so united to Christ by faith that his ministry becomes ours and ours is his. His righteousness becomes ours. His blessings become ours. His sonship becomes ours. His relationship with the Father becomes ours. Uh, so much so to where those who persecute us could be said, to be persecuting him, right? What's Paul's first lesson from Jesus? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? As he's arresting Christians, Jesus says you're doing that to me. Christians are so united to Christ, this union with Christ, that we can, when we do things, we do it in the name of Christ. It's as if it's him himself through us. And that sets the table for our text because our text is all about a wedding, not two baptismal services, uh, and we'll see that. So here's our two main sections. First, we'll look at the last words of John the Baptist. This is verses 25 through 30. And then we'll finally see and we'll look at the bridegroom, Jesus himself. And this is 31 through 36. So you can throw up the first. The, wa- the last words of the best man, I mean best man in the wedding sense. Uh, John the Baptist really says two things in this passage. He says, one, God is sovereign over everything. And then the second thing that he says 
is there's the bridegroom. He's better. He's better than me. And he's, you can in turn say he's better than everyone and everything. So let's look at this first thing, verse 25 through 28. God is sovereign over everything. And John the Baptist seems to rest in that. So we, we talked about his temptation was to be envious, but instead he rests in that God is sovereign over his placement, his role, what he is supposed to be doing, his ministry, the size of it. Uh, John writes this in verses 25 um, through 28. Now discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is uh, with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him, uh, end quote. So we don't really know anything about the discussion, like the content of this, this argument between the Jew and John's disciples. It could be, maybe it's something like chapter 125 when there's a group sent by the Pharisees to kind of check out John the Baptist's ministry. And maybe they're just questioning him over like, what authority do you baptize with? It's possible also they could be asking like, where does this fit in the grand scheme of uh, ritual washings, because there's lots of Old Testament ritual washings. There's lots of traditional ritual washings during Jesus' day. So they could be, we don't know, but they're arguing over it. And apparently it uh, has an effect on John's disciples, a twofold effect. So this first thing that it does is it seems to have caused them to look at Jesus' ministry and observe it. So that's the first effect it, it seems to have had. 22 tells us they were baptizing in the same location, so likely this dispute, maybe it involved Jesus. They looked across the way and they said, hey, there's a growing ministry over there. So they, they observed Jesus' ministry. But second, after seeing Jesus' ministry, they seem to be potentially upset that his ministry is bigger than their master, John the Baptist's ministry. They seem to be a little upset. Now, commentators dispute I've read two different versions of this. Some will actually say they weren't upset. They were rejoicing. And then some say, no, they were upset. They were envious. I think it's better to read it as they were envious uh, for kind of two reasons. Um, the first one is their use of hyperbole. All are going to him. All? I mean, there, there's not one person going to John the Baptist. All are going to him. So, but that on itself could be an exciting thing. They could be excited about it. All are going to him, right? So that doesn't necessarily settle it. But that given with this second thing taken together, John's response is this. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ. He seems to be clarifying to him. Of course my ministry shouldn't be as big as his. I'm not the Christ. Now, John's statement here, I am not the Christ, is a callback to the very first words he says in this gospel. John 1.20. He says, they ask him who he is, and he, the first words out of his mouth in this gospel is, I am not the Christ. And so what's ironic here, or I guess it's not ironic, it's poetic. Um, his first words and his last words among those are, I am not the Christ. He's very clear from beginning to the end of his ministry, at least in the gospel of John, I am not the Christ. So the disciples seem to be distraught. And they seem to be then placing this temptation on John the Baptist. D.A. Carson gives a good 
idea of what the temptation is. He says, for John the Baptist to have wished he were someone else, called to serve in a way many would judge more prominent, would simply be covetousness by another name. That's, they're tempting him to essentially reject the title and position that God himself has given for John the Baptist, that he's to prepare the way for the Christ. And so John's reply, he states a maxim, a truth. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And a very quick application, when we find ourselves in discontentment in anything, our job, maybe we're not being fulfilled by our job, or maybe in, the, in our homes, like, I don't know, our, cho- our children are going through a phase and they're destroying everything, um, and we're not content. Or maybe it's just even in our personal walk, like we're not content. Um, this is a truth. When uh, John the Baptist was faced with discontentment, what did he remind himself of? The sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is not an excuse to remain wallowing in uh, uselessness, but the sovereignty of God is something to rest on, knowing that God has placed you where you are in whatever situation you find yourself in, and that there's a way to worship him in the midst of that situation. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Jesus says a very similar thing later in John 19 to Pilate, when Pilate's saying, do you not know that I can crucify you? I have authority over you, Jesus. Uh, God of the universe who created everything, I have authority over you. Jesus responds, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. There's not one thing a man can receive unless it comes from above. So simply put, the Baptist reminds us there's nothing on earth or in heaven, good or bad, that doesn't happen under the sovereign rule and reign of God. And that should be something that we can rest in. Um, the New City Catechism says it this way in question number one. What is our only hope in life and death? I'm using the kids' version. Um, that we are not our own, but belong to God. We are not our own, but belong to God. He owns us. He's sovereign over us. Uh, this is true of everyone. Even unbelievers who reject this claim, it's still true about them. That they, do not, they are not their own. They belong to God. Uh, you know, we could bring up absurd arguments in culture. My body, my choice, right? That's a famous cultural argument for a lot of different things that, that's used on both sides of the political spectrum. And yet the Bible teaches that we are not our own, but belong to God. Um, so the Baptist rests in sovereignty. But the next thing that the Baptist does is he rejoices. So you can look at point B. Jesus is the church's true bridegroom. Why does he rejoice? Because unlike his disciples, he sees Jesus rightly. His disciples see him as one thing. He sees him as he really is. And so a principle from that is, is our joy should be tied into how we view Jesus. When we view Jesus rightly, we should rejoice. It should be the source of our joy and our rejoicing. Um, So verses 29 through 30, the one who has the bride, is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. His final words, he must increase, I must decrease. That's John the Baptist's final words in the Gospel of John. 
um, and it's maybe his most well-known words. So he tells his disciples a parable of what he actually sees about Jesus. He looks over, and he doesn't see a, a rival ministry, but he actually sees there's the bridegroom, and there's the bride coming to him, and I am simply the friend of the bridegroom. That's the parable that he tells. Now, the friend of the bridegroom, this is lingo for basically an actual official position in the wedding. It's something akin to the best man uh, in, a, in an American wedding, right? So uh, D.A. Carson says it this way, the best man over a Judean wedding found his greatest joy in watching the ceremony proceed without a problem and in knowing that the groom and his bride were being united with great rejoicing. And so that's why John puts himself in that position. He's saying, you guys look at that and you see a rival. I look at that and I'm rejoicing because the bridegroom is getting his bride and that's my whole purpose was just to prepare the way for him. So this text I said was all about a wedding. Uh, Wedding imagery controls it. Uh, I'll give you a couple examples. So there's two weddings in the Gospel of John. There's this one from this parable and then there's the wedding of Cana in chapter 2, 1 through 12. Uh, Pastor Joe preached on chapter 2, 1 through 12. Um, The wedding of Cana is uh, connected to our text in three ways. First, the wedding imagery. Second, water. Water is all throughout this, and water is also through the wedding of Cana. He changes water into wine. And then third, the word purification. So the water changed to wine was done so in what was called jars of purification. And that word purification is only used in two places the wedding of the Cana wedding, and in our text today, when they're disputing over things regarding purification. So our, our text is hearkening back to the wedding text, but it's also connected logically to the wedding of Cana. Uh, Joe mentioned this in his sermon, that it was part of the duty of the groom to provide the spread, the food, and the, particularly the wine. And so there's a conundrum at the wedding of Cana when they're running out of wine. Because this groom hasn't done what he's supposed to do. He's obligated to provide it for his guests. And so what does Jesus do? He transforms water into wine. And thus he actually fulfills the duty of the groom in the wedding of Cana. Already it's alluding to and foreshadowing that Jesus is the truer and better bridegroom. And so our text is connecting. It's all about a wedding. And now John the Baptist tells us, our vision of the wedding, and he, do, he does so not ignorant of what the Old Testament says about Yahweh and his bride. The Old Testament is full of examples of uh, God calling Israel his bride, and that's what Jesus really is doing here. It's Yahweh bringing his people as his bride. That's what he's kind of doing here. So I'll, I'll give a couple of examples. Uh, this is um, <laughs> funny name. Schnitger, that's his name. Um, now, he wrote a book called The Old Testament Use of the Old Testament. And I, for 17,000 times before when I've preached, I've talked about this book called The New Testament Use of the Old Testament being one of the best resources I've ever known to man. Well, guess what? I've been waiting years and years, and finally, Schnitger, this year, in August, published a book called The Old Testament Use, and it just goes through later Old Testament texts and how they use former Old Testament texts. Amazing resource. But he makes the note that Isaiah 54, 6, Jeremiah 2, 2, which are really uh, popular wedding analogies where 
Yahweh is pursuing his bride, Israel, they actually are echoing and connecting to Hosea 2, 14 through 20. So I'm going to read Hosea 2 here so you can see some of this wedding imagery in the Old Testament. Hosea 2, 16 through 20. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by uh, my name, or by that name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, and the creeping things of the ground, all the world. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. So that's Hosea 2.16, some of this bride imagery. And then don't let it be lost. If you just go a couple of verses later, you get Hosea 3, which is perhaps the most powerfully poignant uh, wedding next to Revelation 21, which we've already alluded to. Hosea 3 says, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and electric barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You should not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in the fear of the Lord into his goodness in the latter days. And so God commands Hosea to go love his wife who is now basically sold herself into sex slavery as an adulteress. And God commands him to go and buy her back and take her and make her his wife and remain faithful to her. And he makes that the analogy for Israel and Yahweh. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He has bought us back from our sinfulness and our idolatry, our spiritual adultery. And he has made us his own. And he has betrothed us in faithfulness. And this is what John the Baptist sees when his disciples see all are coming to Jesus and being baptized. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in this passage he says, Behold the one who has the bride has the, is the bridegroom. Jesus has redeemed us through the cross. And he is the true bridegroom. And so let's look. I want to point one other thing out, verse 29 through 20, 30. It's a uh, chiastic structure. It just means it's, it's aligned like a mountain. And there's, there's four parts, and the two parts in the middle are the main emphasis of it. So the first part in verse 29, he's talking about the bridegroom, and then he's talking about the friend of the bridegroom. And then if you look at the last part in verse 30, he must increase, a.k.a. the bridegroom. I must decrease, a.k.a. the friend of the bridegroom. At the middle, in verse 29, second half, and first part of verse 30, it's the friend rejoices at the groom's voice. And then John the Baptist says, my joy is now is, or my joy is complete. And so at the middle of this vision of the bridegroom is joy. Um, the Baptist rests, John the Baptist, rests in God's sovereignty 
and his recognition of what God is doing through Jesus gives him joy. And that's the kind of the last thing he says in our gospel. We're filled with joy when we recognize that in the ministry of the church, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. John's temptation here is for the best man to essentially make the wedding about himself. You might think of a guy, he's asking for the ring, the best man gives the ring over, but instead he hands the ring over and then he kind of stands in front and he just like stares at the audience, covering up the bride and the bridegroom. That's his temptation, but he knows he gives over the ring, he steps back, and he lets the entire vision be about Christ and his church. And his joy, is, it comes from that. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. So a couple of things that we can apply here. Gathering with the church and seeing people added to the church should bring us great joy. When we gather, we're literally gathering around Christ like this group that's gathering to him for, bap- for baptism. We're gathering as a church around Christ. But then secondly, when we see people uh, believe in Jesus and join a local church, it should fill us with great joy because that's also what's happening. Jesus is quite literally bringing his bride to himself. So let's look at this, this last thing. So if John talked about the bridegroom, now uh, we get this post-resurrection reflection, copyright Joe Mueller, Uh, We get this post-resurrection reflection about the bride himself. What is the quality of this bridegroom? And uh, essentially, I just summarize this as the bridegroom is better than all. And we are actually going to follow an outline made by Bruce Milne because I thought he outlined the text as the text kind of outlines itself. He basically stated Jesus is preeminent in origin. Where he comes from is better than where anyone else comes from. He's preeminent in words. His words are better than anyone else's words, and we'll see why. And he's preeminent in resource. He has the spirit without measure. No one else does. So those are the three things that we're going to look at. So look at this first one. Our bridegroom is from above. This comes from verse 31. The gospel writer is now reflecting on this scene that we just talked about, and he says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. So Jesus' origin is better than everyone else's. G.K. Barrett says it this way, connecting back to Nicodemus. There's a birth from above, because the word born again, the word again means from above. It's, It's a play on words. There's a birth from above because Jesus is come from above. So we kind of see a couple of ties back to this uh, Nicodemus passage. Uh, Jesus kind of rebuking Nicodemus said this, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then in our passage, you have John the Baptist, who's from earth, speaking in an earthly way, and Jesus, who's from heaven, and then you can kind of fill in the blank, speaking in a heavenly way. So Jesus has descended to earth in his incarnation, John 1.14, right? The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So he's descended, he's come from heaven. And because he's come from heaven, he's the only one able to speak from heaven. He's the only one that can speak about who God is, John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known to us. 
which is actually where we get the word, fun, maybe side note, it's where we get the word exegesis from. Uh, he has made him known, exegeted. Jesus has exegeted the Father to us. He has revealed, he has brought him into the open and has allowed us to see him. Um, so if the bridegroom is from above, then his bride is born from above. That's kind of the first thing here with the quality of Jesus. Second thing, our bridegroom's words are God's words, 32 through 34. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, end quote. And so Jesus' words are better we have kind of two responses to Jesus' words, his testimony in this text. We can reject him. It says no one receives his testimony. Or we can receive them, which then the text says, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this. God is true. Now why is God true? Why is Jesus' testimony, if the way we receive it, dependent what we state about the truthfulness of God? Why are those two things connected because it says Jesus' words are God's words. And so when we reject Jesus' words, we quite literally reject God's words. We call him a liar when we reject God's words, when we don't receive Jesus' testimony. So the words Jesus gives to us are the very words from the Father. John 17, verse 8. This is the high priestly prayer. Jesus says this. For I have given them, the disciples, the words that you God the Father, gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So if the bridegroom washes his bride with his words, Jesus washes us with the very words of God. Third quality, final quality for the bridegroom. Our bridegroom has the spirit without measure. Second half of 34 and Verse 35, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand, end quote. So Jesus, according to his human nature, has received the spirit without measure. We, if you go back to John 1, uh, one of John the Baptist's first testimonies is, the one whom you see the spirit descend on like a dove, that's the Christ. And John the Baptist received that from the father, and so he saw that. And he's kind of forwarding that to us. And we learned that there, it was the Spirit remained on Jesus. It didn't leave. It remained on him. And that's kind of what's being said in our text today, that he gives the Spirit without measure. Carson, uh, D.A. Carson's helpful here. He gives a quote from a rabbi, I kid you not, named Aha. Um, and the quote is this. The Holy Spirit, this rabbi says, the Holy Spirit who rested on the prophets did so according to the measure of each prophet's assignment. And so he kind of makes the observation that a prophet receives enough of the Holy Spirit to fulfill whatever the role it is for him to have. And then Carson makes the note, not so with Jesus, God gives him the Spirit without measure because his assignment is without measure. All things have been given into Jesus' hand. Again, this is a theme returned on time and time again in the book of John. Go back to the high priestly prayer in John 17. One through three, you see this theme. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, 
to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So if Jesus has the Spirit without measure, and there's no limitation, then there's no limitation to what Jesus gives to his bride, the church. So let's conclude kind of with this final verse, verse 36. John concludes by saying, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This statement is something akin or like John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that uh, whoever believes in him shall not perish. He sent his Son. I butchered that. I need to go back to the soccer game and see that one clown hold up the sign or whatever. Um, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So there's these two responses based on belief or rejection of the son. And we have the same thing here. There's a kind of universal call, whoever. It captures the entire world. There's not anyone that escapes that word, whoever. And then there's two responses. There's belief in Jesus, the son, or there's a rejection, and in our text, it calls the rejection disobedience. So it's kind of interesting here that you have belief and disobedience in parallel with each other. There's some kind of relationship between our faith in Jesus, true saving faith, and our obedience to Jesus. Um, so he's pointing that out. And he also says something else that's really important. There's two kind of active realities. There's eternal life. It's active. It's Right now, when you believe in Jesus, you actually have the foretaste, a a growing foretaste of eternal life. But there's another active reality in this text, and it's the wrath of God. And it probably works very similarly. It's a growing foretaste of the wrath of God. The wrath of God remains on them. And that echoes back to John 1.32. The Holy Spirit remained on Jesus The wrath of God remains on those who reject Jesus. Because why? They reject the Spirit. So what what is this relationship between obedience and faith? Uh, There's a couple of places that I've turned to. Uh, 1 John 3.23 says this, And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. So in some sense, obedient to, to believe in Jesus is to obey God's commandment. So there's one relationship. Uh, John chapter 6, verse 29, Jesus says, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So again, to do the work of God is to believe in Jesus. Uh, we could go to Romans. This is Paul. Uh, Romans 1, 5, uh, Paul tells us that his kind of apostleship is for the purpose of bringing about, I quote, the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. That's Romans 1, verse 5. He actually ends Romans the same way. In verse 16, he makes the reference to the the obedience that comes from faith. And so, in some sense, to believe in Jesus is to obey. And so some of the things that John does, he uses the word believe or faith, some iteration of it, over 100 times in the gospel. It's one of the main things that he's doing. And uh, Scott actually preached and talked about easy believism, this kind of faith that Jesus doesn't entrust himself to, right? 
And so what John's doing throughout his gospel is he's highlighting faith and he's saying, this is not true faith. This is true faith. This is not true faith. This is true faith. And so some of the things that he's done in our text, uh, going back to what David preached in John 3.15, you've got this bronze serpent. And whoever looks at the bronze serpent is healed from the snake bites. And Jesus compares himself to the statue of the bronze serpent that's lifted up. And you almost think in the passage that he's going to say, whoever looks at me will be saved. But instead he says, whoever believes in me will be saved. So what is he saying about saving faith? Saving faith is that which looks to Christ for salvation alone and nowhere else. In our passage, it's obedience, right? Saving faith is that which obeys Jesus. It grows in its obedience. It's not saying, however, that you obey so that you can be saved. It's saying you're saved, therefore you obey. Um, And this seems to harken back to this, uh, we could go to, we'll do Ezekiel 36, 27. says it this way. Um, Ezekiel 36, 27 says that God will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And that passage is all about the new birth. It's what Nicodemus and Jesus were just talking about. And in it, God gives them a new heart, and he removes the heart of stone, and he gives them his spirit, and then the spirit causes them to obey and walk in his statutes. And so that's the sense here in which um, Jesus is saying obedience and faith are correlated. So one other thing that I don't want us to miss If the wrath of God remains on those who disobey, who reject Christ, and eternal life is given to those who believe in Christ, then whatever Jesus does in his ministry, his life, death, and resurrection, it satisfies the wrath of God for those who believe. The wrath of God no longer remains on those who believe. And so Jesus is said to satisfy whatever he's going to do in the rest of the book of John, it is enough to satisfy and remove the wrath of God um, from believers. And so let's end with this. Um, Let's end today by thinking about we're about to sing songs, and we're singing songs quite literally to Jesus, who is our bridegroom. And we've just observed his characteristics, how he's loved us. We've also observed how he's gathered his church together. And so let's sing songs like this, and let's say it this way. May John's disciples, their hyperbole, may John's disciples' hyperbole be true today. May we look up and see of Remedy Church, of churches in Rock Hill, of Rock Hill, and of the world, and actually be able to say, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Let's pray. Father, um, Make Jesus so glorious in our sight today, especially as we sing back your word to you and your truth. Um, Let us feel rightly about Christ and let us think rightly about Christ as we sing to Christ. Father, magnify yourself among us. Um, Glorify yourself. Grow us in our faith. Grow us in our love for one another. May you manifest your presence to us today and our love for one another, our obedience to your commands, like singing worship to you, and our taking of the Lord's Supper. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.